It's good to be with you and enjoyed our time up here this weekend in New York and Mount Carmel and now here at Columbia. I'm so blessed to be able to have this visit, especially with all the weather and travel delays and other challenges along the way. We, um, our heart goes out to all of the churches in this area, the ministers and saints and all the, the change and um, questions about the future, direction and all of that, just seeking the Lord's wisdom. And, um, and we are uh, thankful to be able to join with you in prayer in behalf of those, uh, those changes, those needs, and, um, and, and just knowing that we serve an all-sufficient prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God is wonderful reassurance, even in the times of our great uncertainty. Um, I want to read a couple of verses from the 11th chapter of Hebrews to get into the topic tonight. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is, of course, the listing of uh, what sometimes people call the hall of faith. Not the baseball has a hall of fame, but that's not nearly as important as this hall of faith right here. These are some of the great heroes of the faith going back all the way to the beginning of the world. And, um, and, and interspersed with these case studies of individual men and women, young and old, saints of God who've been blessed to walk in faith, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, walking with trust in the Lord, uh, in, interspersed with these case studies about individual circumstances and challenges and blessings and victories and struggles are some broadly stated principles. Hebrews 11.6 is one of those principles. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. And the him is in reference to God from the preceding verse, because Enoch pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, dear brother that you all know from up in these parts of the country, he started his ministry here, uh, Elder Mike Stewart, pointed out something about this verse to me years ago that just struck me uh, profoundly and has remained with me ever since then. Um, He said there's two things here that we must believe when we come to God. First of all, without faith, it's impossible to please God. No amount of good works, no amount of pedigree or, or uh, outward honor or you know anything we could do to try to curry favor with God. None of that amounts to anything. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then some, some visible manifestations of that faith follow. Because we, he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Well, that seems like a pretty fundamental proposition. You don't have faith if you don't have faith in the God who gives that faith, do you? And, um, and that would seem so obvious that it bears not even stating, except for the fact that now, today, we live in an age where people talk about faith as if it's an end in itself. Faith in nothing in particular. Well, you have faith. I have faith. We have different faiths. There's lots of faiths. And faith just becomes this generic term for religion, yeah. false religion as well as true religion. But, but the God of Scripture says that the faith he's talking about is the kind of faith he gives. And the kind of faith he gives is a faith that is rooted in himself, that points back to himself through Jesus Christ, that that is the faith that he is in the business of of working in the hearts of his children. And so to to be able to please God, to be able to have this communion and fellowship with God, the first proposition is patently obvious but fundamentally important. We must believe that he is. He's real. What the Bible tells us about him is all true. And secondly... 
that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, in my early thoughts on that verse, I thought of this as sort of a broad-ranging description of God's generosity, that if I am in need of uh, some particular thing, that God might provide that thing for me. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if I want a good, a, a godly wife, he will bless me with a godly wife. If I want to have a, a, a nice car, he might bless me with a nice car. If I need a new job, he might bless me with a new job. And all those things are true. God can and does do all those things. But this verse is telling us something much more important than that. He says, God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Seeking God, the end of that quest is finding God. He is a rewarder. That is, he gives the thing that you're seeking when you're seeking him. It's sort of like the old proverb that says, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. When your delight, when your desires are God, all centered around God, all focused on him, his wisdom, his direction, his character, God promises to fulfill that desire. And from that then radiates everything else that is worth having. The, the, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you but they have their place we need food we need shelter we need clothing we need those we need those things but first and foremost above all else and before all else we need the one whom our soul craves we need the Lord Jesus Christ so we must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him And then there's a description of some of the great patriarchs of the faith, Abraham and Sarah. And then the scripture tells us in verse 10 about Abraham, he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. You sang about that tonight. He's saying um, that we're looking for a building not made with hands. I know, I know I have another building not made with hands, the same city that... Abraham was seeking and others because we come down to verse 13 and we read these all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country and the further verses go on to describe that they were not merely seeking earthly inheritance. They were not merely seeking Canaan's promised land here in this world, but they were seeking a better country that is and heavenly, verse, 13, verse 16 says, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And then we come all the way down to the end of the chapter 11, and we see that there, there's a... There's a cost that comes with following God, and it is a cost worth incurring. Now, it is not that we in any way earn the right to God's favor, as we saw before. We simply trust in him, believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. But there is a cost of discipleship, to take up our cross and to follow him. For example, he says of Moses in verse 25 that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. And then broadly, speaking about all these saints, he says in verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions... 
Kids, who do you think that might be? Who stopped the mouths of lions? You remember anybody in a den of lions? You have to tell me. Who was in a lion's den? Daniel, yes, Daniel. God stopped the mouths of lions for Daniel, didn't he? Quenched the violence of fire. Who escaped from a fiery furnace? Yes, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, good. And escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and women even received their dead, raised to life again. What an amazing list of victories, many of them supernatural, obviously supernatural in their character. I want to be a part of that team, the team that is accomplishing these amazing things, walking by faith as they follow God. But that's not the end of the list. Because right there in verse 35, suddenly the tone of this list changes. And instead of a long description of one supernatural victory or deliverance after another, the Holy Spirit then begins to remind us, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. If we had asked at the beginning, who wants to be on this team with all these great victories and everybody put their hands up, maybe as we kept reading the list, your hand would get a little bit lower and then you'd scratch, you get an itch down here to scratch somewhere. I don't want to, I'm not sure I want to sign up for the team of people that get sawed in half and tortured and afflicted and tormented. But it's the same team. These are God's people. And just as the hymn writer said, God doesn't always promise us skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our lives through. What he promises is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That he'll be with us in six troubles and not forsake us in seven. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's the God of Jacob who changed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who changes not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. He is the great almighty God, and in him is our confidence, not in our circumstances. So when things are going well, God is good and God is God. And when things are going badly or painfully or with difficulty, God is still good and God is still God. And so we find that this cohort of faithful men and women of old stand Shoulder to shoulder with us today, or as chapter 12 says, as a cloud of witnesses around us, encompassing us, to urge us on, to urge us to embrace the cost, however painful it be, to urge us to delight in the victories and savor those victories, however sweet and unexpectedly they may come. And then he says of this, of this list of heroes, the, the victorious as well as the bloodied and beaten, he says, of whom the world was not worthy. These are the real heroes that stand out from the annals of human history. They were not the, not the great soldiers, Ulysses and Achilles and, and General Patton and uh, you know, all the wonderful uh, military heroes of history. Certainly not the, the basketball and football and movie stars of our day. No, the great heroes of all time are headed by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself. In this band of brothers and sisters following him, he says, the world doesn't even deserve people of this caliber. That's the kind of man and woman, young children, you want to aspire to be. This is what is, these are descriptions of lives well lived. 
They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And now get this, having said all these wonderful things about these heroes of the faith, he says, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. What he's saying there is that we stand on the shoulders of these giants. That was an Isaac Newton statement, by the way. He said, we, uh, if we discovered great things scientifically, and Isaac Newton was a believer in the the, the true God and, the, and his, the truth of his word. But he said, if we've discovered great things in our day, it's because we've stood on the shoulders of the giants who came before us. And so we could see just a little bit further. Well, friends, that's you and I today. We stand on the shoulders of these giants of the faith. And God says, as wonderfully blessed and meaningful and profoundly impactful their lives were, you have something that even they did not have. You have the revelation of a mystery hidden from the beginning of time. You have something that they searched into, that they inquired about, that they had glimpses of, they had clues about, but they did not have the fullness of God's revelation in this matter. So go with me back now to Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, there's a dispute in the early church regarding the the Judaizers who attempted to make the uh, mold early Christian churches into the form of... uh, Hebraic, Hebraic Christianity, um, tr- attempting to impose Jewish traditions and practices on churches even that came from among the Gentiles. And there was a debate and a discussion about how to handle this. And it's the conclusions they came to are very interesting and very worth reading. But I really just want one verse out of this passage that comes from the pastor at Jerusalem, uh, James, who in expounding his wisdom on this subject, he, he mentions a principle that is very important for us to bear in mind. Acts chapter 15, verse 18. He says, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Now, there are things I'm going to do tomorrow that I don't know today. Things I haven't even thought about yet for tomorrow. And there are things I have thought about for tomorrow and made plans about for tomorrow that I dare say, if my track record is any indication, are not going to come to pass tomorrow even though I plan to accomplish them. So even the, the best laid, what do they say, the best laid plans of mice and men, they, they always, there's some, something that always goes awry, something that always comes up, something that, that trips up our expectations and our plans. Man makes plans, but God directs our steps. But there's one being and one being alone for whom that is not true. God knows already everything he will ever do. And he knows it with certainty. Or to put it another way, God is never caught off guard or surprised. Because if God knows everything he's going to do, and some of the things that God is going to do have to do with you, then that's a pretty good clue that God knows what you're going to do too. If God is going to, for example, deliver you from some, well, we talked about the Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. If he knew in advance, as scripture tells us he did, that he was going to deliver them from the fiery furnace, then he knew in advance that they were going to stand up and and bear faithful witness to his name and therefore be cast into the fiery furnace. And so God's plan, God's purpose, God's decree, as it's sometimes called, was already in place. He already knew his own works. God was not caught by surprise by any of that. And there's nothing in our lives today that catches God by surprise either. In fact, God specializes in surprising us rather than being caught by surprise himself. He surprised another character in that uh, account in the book of Daniel 
This is not about the three Hebrew children, but this is about that uh, old King Nebuchadnezzar who had multiple repeated encounters with God that got deeper and deeper and deeper each time. First, Nebuchadnezzar was impressed that the followers of this Jehovah God stood out kind of head and shoulders above the other young people in his command. They would make a stand on, on based on courage and conviction. And they would say, no, we're not going to eat the king's meat. We're going to do things the way our God has commanded us to do. And that got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. He, 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 he raised an eyebrow. He didn't really know that God yet, but he, he was impressed about these young men, that, these people that were somehow different from everyone else around them in society. And then bit by bit, encounter by encounter, Nebuchadnezzar gets closer and closer to, to a, a personal encounter with God, which then happens, it's revealed to us, in the fourth chapter of Daniel here. Daniel, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar rather, is lifted up in pride. He's boasting, not really, it doesn't seem like trying to shake his fist in God's face deliberately. He's just sort of ignoring that God's there. He thinks he's God. He gets up and sort of just sings his own praises and his own glory and how wonderful he is. And God suddenly and in a moment humbles him and brings him down very low. Brings him down to the place of really being almost like an animal, like a beast in the field. And after seven turns or years, periods of time there, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, claws around on the earth like an animal, his hair grows as thick as feathers, suddenly in Daniel 4.34, he says, At the end of days, end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and whose kingdom is from generation to generation. He was proud of the dominion he had built, but then God showed him an everlasting dominion. He was proud of his kingdom that he had conquered, but then God showed him a kingdom that endures from generation to generation. And he realized, wow, there is a king greater than me. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing before this great king. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? For a while, Nebuchadnezzar thought that was a description of him. Nobody can stop me. And then God stopped him. Stopped him dead in his tracks, put him down on his all fours on the ground. And Nebuchadnezzar looked up and said, oh, there's another God, another king higher than me who nobody can stop. I can't stop him. I must bow before him. At the same time, Nebuchadnezzar says, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, parenthesis, like me, he is able to abase. Now Nebuchadnezzar has come to a personal recognition of who this Jehovah God is. This one who made such a difference in the lives of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and now in the life of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So God was not surprised by any of what unfolded there. God had a purpose. God had a plan. God had an objective in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's recorded here for our benefit as well as it was experienced by him thousands of years ago for his own benefit. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the the world. Well, let's look at Scripture and see what else 
God has known about and what else God might have been doing since the foundation of the world. I wasn't there, so I don't know from personal acquaintance. I didn't observe God creating the universe. You didn't either. But God has seen fit in his mercy and goodness to tell us a few things, to give us some insight into what his everlasting purposes and plans have been. What was God doing from the foundation of the world, from the very beginning of time, from before there was ever an Adam or an Eve or any of those characters we read about in the Bible? Well, let's look all the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 13, for just a little clue in a verse here about some things that happened before the foundation of the world or at the foundation of the world. He says in Revelation chapter 13, talking about the warfare with evil, the beast, the the lamb of God. He says here in Revelation 13, 8, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, talking about the beast, whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 17, 8 makes a similar reference. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, but they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there about beasts that we're not going to talk about today, but the, the point here is there was a, a demarcation, a distinction made in the human race from the very beginning of time. From the foundation of the world, there was what's called the Lamb's Book of Life and, and, and how these, pers- these people's lives unfolded was radically different depending on whether or not their name was written in that Lamb's Book of Life. So that's something God did at the beginning before you or I were here, something from the foundation of the world, and he even says that it was the Book of Life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now... I've heard people debate about whether the foundation of the world in that verse is talking about the writing of the book or the lamb being slain. Essentially, they're both true because we're talking about the God who, who calls that which is not as though it were, and it is. And so if God, in his eternal mind and purpose, had in mind the sacrifice of his son, the spotless lamb of God, from the foundation of the world, which I think we can see from other scriptures he did have in mind, then in a very real sense, legally, And according to God's purpose, Jesus Christ stood as the eternal sacrifice for the sins of his people. The sword had not yet been plunged into him. He had not yet been nailed to a cross. But in the mind and purpose of God, it was as good as done. Because God is the one who knows in advance everything he is going to do. And none of it ever fails. All right, let's look back in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Some of you asked about our dear brother, Elder Joe Hildreth, uh, down in Chattanooga, pastored that church for, uh, in a primary leadership role for over 30 years and served that church in some capacity for uh, well over 40, 45 years and labored in the ministry for close to 70 years. He was a dear man of God, went home to be with the Lord at the end of this last year. 
And I can still vividly remember several of the messages he preached, one of them from this text right here. He said, this verse, this passage speaks about a reservation and it speaks about preservation. The preservation is verse five. He says, you are kept by the power of God. That's preservation. That is God not letting go of his children, just as Jesus said in John 17, that not one of us would slip from the father's hand. He says, you're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And he says, there's also a reservation. Verse four says, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. When you're going to a city somewhere and you're trying to make plans in advance, even though they don't always work out, when you're trying to plan in advance, you usually make a reservation at a hotel somewhere. And, uh, and that reservation says, okay, we've got a room that's set aside for you. It's got your name on it. We're expecting you to arrive on such and such a date. And when you get here, we're going to treat you like kings and queens and make you feel right at home. If you show up and your reservation got canceled somehow, that's a very frustrating experience. But again, we're talking about the God who knows perfectly in advance all that he's going to do. So if God says, I've got a reservation in your name in heaven, you can take it to the bank. In fact, it's so certain that in Romans chapter 8, in the golden chain of salvation, he says, for whom he did, he did foreknow, then he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And whom he predestinated, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. I'm sorry, I skipped one. Whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. Well, nobody that Paul was writing to was glorified yet when he wrote that word, those verses. But it was in the past tense. It was as good as done. Because when God says, I'm going to glorify you, it's just about as good as if you're already glorified. It's just that certain anyway. And here he says, this reservation in heaven and the preservation of you, my children, I'm certain that this place I've prepared for you is going to be waiting and ready. And I'm certain that you are going to be waiting and ready for it because I've reserved and I've preserved. And then down in verse 20, he says, who verily, speaking of Jesus, verse 19, the, with the, we redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. How are Old Testament saints saved? Some people think that it's two different systems or seven different systems of salvation. That's the dispensational school of theology. It says all one, one different system of salvation after another, all down through the, the, the eras of human history. But friends, it's the same Jesus from beginning to end. He was foreordained from before the foundation of the world. Yes, he was manifest. He was revealed in these last times for you. That's the special gift, the special fulfillment of that promise and blessing that he mentioned in Hebrews 11 that the Old Testament saints didn't have. But they still had salvation on the basis of the very same Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Did you read where Moses, who, who never had, he lived thousands of years before Christ was ever born into the world, but it said he had respect under the recompense of the award because he counted the, the, uh, the, the, he would rather suffer affliction for Christ's sake than to enjoy the, the treasures of Egypt, for the pleasures of Egypt for a season. He, he was, his vision was, was forward looking, anticipatory toward the same Lord Jesus Christ that you and I look back to his life and his sacrifice and his victorious rising from the grave. 2,000 years later. So there's a mystery here that was unfolded over time, and it was something that was planned and purposed before the foundation of the world and comes to full fruition now in these, what the Scripture calls, last times. Continuing to turn backwards through the New Testament, let's go to 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, 
We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, again, all the way back in time, from the foundation of the world, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul viewed what he was doing as important, as important enough that it was worth laying down his life to accomplish the work God had called him to do. But you know, Paul didn't think he was Jesus. Paul didn't think he could do the work that only Jesus could do. But just as in that beautiful illustration of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave, he says to him, Lazarus comes forth, come forth, and it is the life-giving voice of the Son of God that brings the dead to life. And then Jesus turns to those disciples with him and says, loose him and let him go. Well, so it is with Paul and his ministry. He knows that only God himself, through the life-giving voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, can raise the dead in sin to life in Christ. But Paul's life is focused on loosing and letting go, setting free those captives that God has delivered into his presence, who's brought his path across theirs, and now he has a message for them. He has good news, the gospel, to deliver to them for their further deliverance. God, from the beginning, he says, chose you to salvation. So we see that God has a plan, a purpose, a purpose, an intention from the beginning of before time itself, before our first parents, Adam and Eve, to do great and wonderful things that were in large part mysterious through much of the course of human history, but now are revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him that is in Christ before the foundation of the world, and not just chosen us for some, you know, heaven and immortal glory, and as an end in itself. No, he says he's chosen us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Or as we've already alluded to from Romans chapter 8, predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God chose a people in Christ that he might make them like Christ. And friends, we will never be fully like Christ in this life. I talked to a sister one time who was well into her 80s. And you know what she said to me? She said, Brother Andrew, I think I've got enough of the devil in me still that I can. And she told about how she was going to give her husband a piece of her mind. Well, okay. Uh, well, at least she's honest. You know, she's admitting that she's, uh, she, as much as she wants to be like Christ, she knows she's not there yet. Um, there is no child of God perfectly in this life conformed to the image of Christ. But friends, what a delightful experience it is to be transformed by the renewing of his spirit, his work, his grace within our lives each day. Though the outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says. And so little bit by little bit, 2 Corinthians 3 says we're changed from glory into in, glory by, by the spirit working in us. As if we're looking into a mirror and seeing a transformation taking place there. That's my desire. Is that your heart's desire as well? Because that is the reason, the, the purpose for which God has chosen the redeemed family of Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. People, we talk about sometimes accepting Jesus 
And there's a sense in which we do need to come to terms with what Jesus has done for us. Sometimes it's we're in active rebellion against him. And as the old preacher used to say, we just need to lay down our arms and admit defeat. But as precious as it is to come to a place where you accept Jesus, it's much more precious to come to the place where you realize Jesus accepted me. Because that is what makes all the difference. His acceptance of me is what transforms my heart and life and draws me into his throne room. Verse 9, he says, having made known unto us, again, here's that mystery, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And finally, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 25. To see a, a, a vivid glimpse. We, we still don't fully conceive of all that heaven and immortal glory will be. We don't know all that is in store. I have not seen nor ear heard. There's, there's much yet to be discovered. As Brother Glenn Blanchard likes to say, there's more in the Bible about how you're supposed to be responsible managers of your money and support the kingdom of God than there is about what's going to happen in heaven. There's, there's, there's stuff there yet to be unfolded and unpacked in the future for us. But there's enough revealed to us that we can be assured and strengthened by the word of God that his purposes have come to fruition and are coming to fruition and will come to fruition. Here in Matthew 25, we see a a premonition, if you will, a a prophetic view of the scene of the final judgment as all the sheep and the goats, all the nations of the earth are gathered before the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of Man comes in his glory, verse 31, and all the holy angels with him when he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. And then verse 34 says, shall the king say unto them on his right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From the very beginning, God had already declared the very end. That's funny. That sounds very familiar. God says he's just that God. He's the one who has declared the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God is the one who from the very beginning knew every step along the way that needed to happen for his divine purposes to be fulfilled. There was no possibility that Jesus would not come into this world at the appointed hour. There was no possibility that Jesus would back down from the assignment before him and decide, Father, it's too much. I can't go to the cross. There's no possibility that he would accidentally be stoned or drowned or killed in some other way before he went to the cross of Calvary because God had a purpose and an appointment for him there on that date. And friends, for every one of God's children, God has a purpose and an appointment for his Holy Spirit to come into your heart and breathe light and life and transformation. When Jesus and his disciples were heading back from Judea, back to Galilee in the north, he said he must needs go through Samaria. He didn't have to geographically go through Samaria. It was the shortest route, but it was also the least favored route. Kind of like going through Secaucus, New Jersey to get to Manhattan. It might be the most direct route, but it's not always the best route. Well, well, Jesus didn't have to go through, uh, I can say that because I used to live there, no offense to anybody. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria, but he said, he didn't have to go geographically. He said, I must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because he had an appointment that day with a woman at Jacob's well. 
And when they tried to bring him lunch afterwards, he said, no, don't bother me with that. He said, I had meat to eat that you know not of. It was the fulfilling of Jesus' purpose, his eternal purpose to meet that one lady that one day at that one place in that one moment that would change her life forever. And friends, so it is God's purpose to meet as he did Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, as he does each and every one of his children when he breathes powerfully into their hearts and lives and opens their eyes to spiritual things and begins to lead and guide them. Romans 8 says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. These are God's purposes that he has set in place from the foundation of the world. And these purposes are sure to be fulfilled. May God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.